Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. It's another edition of Mile High Magazine, and I am Murphy Houston. Good to see you here. Happy Sunday to all. Uh, Today, we have Dr. Carl Clark with us, President and Chief Executive Officer of Mental Health Center of Denver. Doctor, welcome in. Thanks for having me. Glad you could come by. I'm happy to be here. Well, you you seem happy to be here. I am. (laughs) I want you to be happy to be here. Well, let's talk about uh, the Mental Health Center of Denver. I'm sure a lot of folks don't know you're out there. They don't know what you're about. And maybe since you're the president and chief executive officer, you can probably explain that. Well, I'll talk about mental health centers. So we have 17 in the state. Uh, We happen to be the one that serves the city and county of Denver. But the other 16 actually serve the entire state. So if you look at our state, there is a mental health center in every area. So if somebody's listening and they happen to be in another part of Colorado, there's a mental health center that serves them too. And what we focus on is helping people get their lives together. So many folks get derailed by a mental illness or an addiction problem as they're going through life. And our services are all about helping people get their lives back together. That seems to be a hot topic in the news these days, doesn't it, doctor? It is. The whole thing with mental health, whether it's related to sad, some of these gun shootings we hear about, or and something we'll probably talk about later, the suicide level. I mean, we've had some big-time celebrities in the last couple of weeks. It, it's, it's a problem. It is a problem. And part of what people don't know is that it's actually common. So one in five people are dealing with a mental illness at any given moment. One in four. One in pe- five. One in five. And one in four will deal with a mental illness over the course of a year. So Whether you're dealing with an illness or not, you likely know somebody who is, and we just don't talk about it. And if we could talk about it more, I think more people would actually get the help they need. Is there an age frame here for mental illness? Does it develop early? Can it develop any time in your life? It does develop early, you know, so there are different types of mental illness, right? Some of the illnesses are really quite difficult, and those illnesses um, affect young people. Right. So that's when they start, you know, so like 14 to early teens to late, you know, or early 20s is when people really start experiencing these kinds of problems. And they're often just thought of as growing pains or something like that instead of recognizing that maybe there's a part of this person's brain that's not really kind of working well. And how do you determine that? I mean, is there obviously there's got to be some kind of signs. There are signs, you know. So there's, uh, you know, everybody has their ups and downs, right? So we're not talking about the normal ups and downs right. of everyday life, right? Or the normal emotional ups and downs that people have. But when the when the emotions get to a point that they're interfering with your ability to do the things that you want to be doing, then it's time to see somebody and look at getting some help. So would you go to your initial practitioner, your doctor first, maybe, or do they come right to see you? Actually, most people um, will go see their primary care doc first. Sure. um, And they often may not be able to even articulate what's going on. You know, so for example, when people are depressed, they're usually not sleeping well, they feel tired, their mood may be down, but they may not necessarily tell the doctor that part of it. 
That's why a lot of practices these days have screening tools where they ask the kind of questions to get, is there an emotional component to you're not feeling well? Oh, that's tough to determine that. It's tough to admit that, I would think, if you think you're going through that. I think it is. And I think it's one of the things that we're seeing change over time is that as more people talk about having had an experience with a mental illness, I think it's easier for other people to say, wow, you know, I think I've had that too. I was at a school once where um, the kids had seen um, As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson, oh, sure. right? Good movie. And, and he had obsessive compulsive disorder, right? And one of the kids raised his hand and said, do you know, like if you do those things like Jack Nicholson did in that movie, do you think maybe you should go see somebody? <laughs> you know, and your advice yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I think maybe so. <laughs> well, so, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great story in itself. You know, there's these new buzzwords out there: trauma informed care. Maybe you can talk about what it means and how's it changing how we treat mental illness. Well, now this is really interesting. Um, in 1999, there was an internist that had help people lose weight, right? The, and losing weight meant that their cardiac conditions would be better and their overall health would be better. Right. So they did all this work to lose the weight. They were successful, and most of them gained it back. And this doctor was like, well, what is going on here? They worked so hard to do this. So he studied this large group of people. It was happened to be in California to try to suss out what is driving people doing things that are not healthy for them. And what was uncovered is this idea of adverse childhood experiences, you know, traumas that occurred. And they kind of fit in two categories. Some of them were things where bad things were happening to children, you know, physically abused or sexually abused, those types of things. But sometimes it was the lack of things, you know, neglect, like a parent not being available or nurturing or those sorts of things. And what we discovered is is that the more traumas that we have as a child, the worse our health outcomes in the future. So trauma-informed is the idea where you don't want to re-traumatize people when they're trying to get help. So if people are going to a clinic, you want the atmosphere to be such that it's welcoming and it doesn't trigger people for their past old traumas. So you never outgrow those traumas. You can heal from those traumas, but you need a safe environment to do that. And that's what trauma-informed is about, you know. Right. So so I could give you a personal experience. Please do. You know, so um, I uh, cook a lot, and I had sharpened my knives, and one fell off the edge of the counter and sliced my leg. Oh. And I, you know, looked at it and thought, oh, a Band-Aid. And it was like, no, this is more than a Band-Aid, right? So I went to the emergency room to get it sewn. And, uh, you know, it's the typical thing here, fill out this paperwork, you know, you're holding your bleeding leg, but you do all that sort of stuff. You hand it in and I'm, you know, pretty relaxed sort of guy. Sure. And, um, and the woman who took my paperwork said, you'll go with this guy, the nurse. And I started to follow the nurse and the nurse said, stop, sit down. Really? Wait till I call you. Oh, And I thought, okay, you know, I thought I was being called. But anyway, so I sat down. But I was thinking, wow, you know, if I was not kind of a calm person, that might have set me off. 
right? Yes. That might set anybody off. My leg is yeah. bleeding here. Yeah. What do you mean sit down? I'll right. call you. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, 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 so our treatment approach in healthcare needs to be trauma-informed. We need to create an environment where people who are already on the edge don't get pushed over the edge right. by the way we interact with them. So that's, you'll hear a lot about, a lot about trauma-informed approaches, not even just in healthcare, but also in schools, in all kinds of social settings. Well, do you, maybe not you personally, but you did bring up the topic of the school and the movie, which I thought was a good story. Does Mental Health Center of Denver and all the outlying areas, do you reach out to schools? Do you go other places to talk to people about what's happening? Yeah, so we have uh, two big approaches. You know, one is we have clinics that people come to. Sure, And we would say they're trauma-informed, they're friendly, they give people the sense of hope when they walk in the door. Um, And we also go to places where people already are who might need help. You know, so that's school-based health clinics, uh, child treatment facilities, nursing homes, community-based organizations. If we hear that there's a group of folks that might need our help, we figure out how to get our staff into those facilities to give people access to what they need. Is it hard to approach when you are dealing with somebody that has a, a problem and you've been invited into the situation? Is that difficult? I mean, how do you handle that? You just don't come right out and say, I think you got a problem. You know, I think that's uh, that would be true for anybody, right? Right. You know, so um, there is a way to ask questions that we find is helpful for anybody, you know. So if the question is, what's wrong with you, that's going to put people off right at the beginning, right? Yeah. But anybody can ask the question, what happened to you? Like, what happened to you? You know, so if you have a friend, for example, and it doesn't seem like things are going well, you can ask that question. It's like, what happened to you? And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, you're usually kind of a cheerful person, but lately it just hasn't seemed that you've been that cheerful. And so I just, did something happen? And you don't even need to be a diagnostician to have that conversation. And people might say, you know, I'm not sleeping well. I'm worried about work. I feel stressed out by what's going on. And then it's really easy to say, you know, maybe you should go see somebody. Maybe you should ask somebody for some help. And you can actually do that to a family member yourself. I mean, that's really compassionate, those questions you were just showing. I just care about you. What's going on? That's right. And that really kind of breaks down a lot of barriers, I would think. Yeah, because everybody has things happen to them. Sure they do. You know, so if you start with what happened, you will open the doors to people being able to talk. And in Colorado, we really are fortunate that we have a statewide crisis line that people can call at any time. It's the Colorado Crisis Services, and I have the number, you know. So You're the man, Doc. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's 1-844-493-TALK. Which is eight two five five based on my phone. That's right. That's right. Do, would you repeat that, please? Yeah, one eight four 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 nine three eight two five five. And how about a website? You must have a website you can share. Well, there is the uh, Colorado Crisis Services, and that's www.coloradocrisisservices.org. And this is available twenty four seven. 
And you don't have to decide if it's a big crisis or a small crisis or, you know, what the issue is. There are professional people that are available 24-7 to call, and they will help walk through if there's something going on and give you access to help if you need it. That's great that it's 24-7. It is 24-7. Because when things happen, you need help now, not not tomorrow. That's right. That's a great thing. Let's uh, talk about a topic that, unfortunate, affects all people of all ages, and that's suicide. Yes. And, you know, we had Kate Spade and others recently. These are high-profile people that are taking their lives. And, of course, you hear so many with youngsters, teenagers in particular, it's very frightening. Maybe you could help with warning signs or what should we be looking for? How can we help with that situation? Well, so let me talk about um, we often will get called to go visit um, a group after a suicide has occurred, you know, and suicides that occur uh, where we get called into the work setting. And when we have the conversations with folks about you know, the stress of losing somebody that they knew or that they cared about. We often hear some people saying things like, I knew something wasn't quite right, but I just didn't know what to do. Sure. Right? And so that's the criteria. If you have a sense that something is not quite right, it's time to have a conversation about that. You know, so, you know, if people stop, you know, they're not showing up to work, they're not engaged with the family, they're, you know, sort of withdrawn or, you know, irritable. I mean, there's a variety of things it could be, and it manifests in many different ways. Um, and asking the question really simply, you know, it's like, you know, what happened to you? And is it such that you're thinking about hurting yourself? You know, right. Yeah. Now, and giving the hotline, you know. For the one we just gave. The, the crisis, one that we just gave. Crisis hotline. That's right. Now, if you're dealing with adults on that level, it might be easier to pick up some tendencies. Right. But when you're dealing with teenagers, and I've raised four. Yes. They're going, oh, my gosh. They're just teenagers. They're growing. They're changing. They're moody. They're teenagers. Uh-huh. Is there more we should be digging for? More we should be aware of with that age level? Well, it it, it is true that when you start to see um, – teenagers who aren't doing even the usual teenage stuff, right? They're not hanging out with their friends. They're getting disconnected from them. They're, you know, um, so uh, it's beyond the usual ups and downs of usual, sure. you know, teenage, right? You know, right. Um, think I'm, so. I'm just mad at dad today, you yeah. know, sort of thing. Um, yeah, those are times to have conversations. What we do know is that, um Training people in mental health first aid um, is a really great thing to know what to do. So mental health first aid is sort of like um, the sort of brain version of general first aid. You know, so um, it's sort of like how to recognize when something might be going on. And it's also about, you know, what you can do as a lay person to help somebody in that moment of crisis. That's a fantastic idea. So how do we get involved with that? Here we go. Okay. Well, so, you know, so mental health first aid is, is, uh, is actually, um, it's a, it's a day long, uh, training program and, uh, it's done all over the country. Every mental health center in Colorado does it. Oh, really? And we do it too at the mental health center of Denver. And so you just go to, uh, our website, uh, 
uh, mhcd.org, um, and uh, it's MHFA, right? Mental Health First Aid. So if you put that in there, you can get it, trainings. You can also go to the Colorado Behavioral Health Care Council website. I mean, there's lots of places where people can get training. And what we find is people feel, um, they feel empowered, you know, um, not only just for, um, you know, their friends and family, but we hear stories about, I was at a restaurant and there was a person that couldn't even walk to their car really? because wow. of being intoxicated and being able to just do the simple interventions so that person stayed safe. So often are these classes like once a month or? Well, yeah, different centers different, do them different right. ways. You know, we do them a couple of times a month. Yeah. That's, that's a yeah. great idea yeah. for professionals yeah. and yeah. lay people, as and, you mentioned. And what people say is, is they feel like their own personal mental health literacy goes up, that they get a better understanding of these illnesses really happen, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, trauma. I mean, it's like, wow, these things happen. And there really are treatments that can help people get better. Just the awareness is fantastic. Yeah. Because most of us go, what do we do? What's, yeah. what's going on? I don't know where to go. Yeah. Not a great thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Carl Clark, president and chief executive officer of Mental Health Center of Denver, which I understand you're also a national leader for measuring recovery. What is that treatment all about? <laughs> well, so, um, so. It's interesting, whether you're in a job or you're going to see a healthcare provider, you kind of want to have a sense about how well you're doing, right? You know, so if you go see your uh, primary care doc and you happen to have diabetes, um, you want something more than the doctor saying you're doing really well with your diabetes. It's like, is my hemoglobin A1C good? See what you're saying. You know, it's like, I want to know you know, how I'm doing well and if I am or, or I'm not. And so many years ago, we knew that people who were dealing with any kind of mental health condition, they wanted the same thing. They wanted to know, how am I doing? So we developed a set of instruments that look at uh, how the person is doing from their own personal viewpoint. You know, they're measuring sure. how they're doing from their viewpoint and the clinical viewpoint of the clinician highly anchored instrument, you know, looking at, you know, how are they doing in different areas like sense of hope and dealing with symptoms and a variety of things like that. And um, we use those instruments to really give people feedback about how they're doing and how much of our help do they need or how much they don't need anymore, right? Because as people get better, we hope they don't need us at all, right? That's a good thing. Well, right. That's a good thing. So. Yeah, that's positive. Uh, I also read in some of the notes that were sent over that the Mental Health Center of Denver also helps with affordable housing for people who are recovering. Is that true? We do. Yeah. We do. Yeah. How, how does so, that work? Well, so um, imagine this. It doesn't matter what illness that you have. Uh, it's really hard to get better if you don't have a place to live. And one of the things that we know is that many people who are homeless are dealing with some pretty tough circumstances. Correct. And um, many folks, in fact, most po- folks that have been homeless will experience some sort of trauma. You know, bad sure. things happen when you're on the streets. Oh, you know, no doubt. So, um, so we develop housing for people that we see um, where they have a safe place to live as they're on their journey to getting better. 
In fact, our program, um, you know, we help homeless people get off the streets and into housing, and that's where we start. We don't start with the, you know, even what happened to you. We start with, would you like to have a place to live? <laughs> right? That would get their attention. That's where you start, sure. right? That's like that breaking down the barriers you're talking. Exactly. You're reaching out. You're trying That's to right. help, and you're breaking that down. It yeah. helps them open up a little bit. Yeah. And, the, and when people have a place to live, then there are things that you have to relearn, right? It's like, how do you take care of your place? You've lived on the streets for any lengthy period of time. You kind of forget those things that you knew before, right? right. Yes. How do you keep your yes. place clean? How do you wash your clothes? How do you buy groceries? I mean, all those things you kind of have to relearn. And if there's an illness that's interfering with that, we help people with that illness. Um, and you put the, are these like apartments or are they regular homes that you help with? It's a, it's a variety of things. Good. You know, we have uh, some group homes. Um, that's uh, where people, six or eight people, will live together, and they kind of learn how to be around people again. Because when you're sure. on the streets, you're, you're by you yourself. kind of need to keep people away yeah. because it might be dangerous. So how do you get used to being around people again? How do you learn all those skills that you used to know? And then we have independent apartments where people have their own place to live. Well, maybe you can talk about two of your new locations, which are the uh, Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being and Emerson Street. And I know there's probably a difference between those two yeah. locations, but let's talk about those. So the Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being um, is a project that we started. And I'll just say that there are still a lot of strong feelings about even talking about mental health, much less having a mental health facility in your neighborhood. Right. Right. So it usually starts with people need help, but not in our neighborhood, right? <laughs> sure. So, yeah, they don't want you there. Yeah, right. So we, you know, got this piece of property, and uh, the neighborhood kind of started there. It's sort of like, we don't want this. We talked with the neighborhood very deeply, though, about what do people in this neighborhood need to thrive? And the conversation shifted from, you're building something for those people to you're building something for somebody like me. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, and there was a conversation that there were mental health needs in every neighborhood. That's true. Every neighborhood. It's got to be true. Right? And, and this particular neighborhood said, you know, it's more than mental health. We also don't have access to good food. They were in a food desert, right? Wow. No nutritious no, food. No big grocery stores? Or, is that what no. you're saying? And, Nothing. And actually, they're in a food swamp, which is access to really bad food. Wow. You know, lots of fast food. So we went from the idea of building a clinic to having a site where we have an urban farm, a greenhouse that's growing vegetables and fish, a dental clinic, a school, an inclusive preschool, community kitchen, a gym, daycare, wow. and our clinical services. That's right? spectacular. And it was all because of this community saying, to help us, this is what we really need. And what we know, no matter what community we talk about anywhere, every community has strengths, things that they're good at, and they have a deep understanding of knowing these are the things that would help our community be even better. And so that's the Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being. And our viewpoint is that everybody would like their well-being to be better. 
How do you open that up to all communities? Because you're right. If one in five Americans have problems, that's every community, right? Right. Do they have to approach you or does somebody tip you off? And do you have community meetings? I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's going to vary because everything's local, right? Right. You know, so right. different communities approach these issues different ways. And I would say that, you know, folks that are, you know, primarily interested in helping folks with mental illness and addiction and overall well-being, those are the groups to connect with about what you can do in your community in a new and different way. So this particular community didn't want us there, right? Right. Now we have two other neighborhoods in Denver who have asked us to come and do the same thing in their community. So the word's out there. The word's out there. And now we're doing it again, getting the word out there. We are. So if somebody needs help, they would reach out to you. Yeah. Or, or at least they want to start something in, right. their, in their community. Yeah. yeah. Talk about Emerson Street. A little so bit. Emerson is interesting. So Emerson is for young people, okay. you know, from the ages of 15 to 26. And, uh, you know, most young people don't particularly like the idea of going to a clinic, right? <laughs> Why does it sound like somebody, something for old people? It does sound like something for old people. <laughs> and so we bought an old mansion um, in the central part of Denver near downtown, and it looks like a big old mansion. And it's for young people to go. And young people might not want to go to therapy, but they certainly are interested in going to talk to somebody. Sure. And that particular site, we help young people figure out what they want to do with their careers, if they want to get a job, if they want to go back to school, if there are issues that are going on in their life where maybe they're thinking, I need to make better bad decisions, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that sort of thing where they want to do things in a different way. And uh, that's just open the door. And words out. So young people tell other young people, you know what? You go to that place there, and they 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 have folks that you can talk to that uh, is really quite helpful. So when you talk about these young people, Doc, are these young people that are living on the street? We know there's a lot of those going on. Are these people that have families and don't want to talk to their family but want to reach out to somebody? It's all of that. Oh, really? All of that. Wow. You know, both young people that have gotten disconnected from sure. their families. And young people that are still with their families and disconnected from them. Sure. Yeah, that happens yeah, a lot, I'm yeah, afraid. Yeah. They yeah. grow out of that. You've got some information there for us that, that for people reaching out? Well, so, you know, for folks that live in Denver, if anybody needs help, you know, our doors are wide open. And uh, our access line is uh, 303-504-7900. And we have folks there that are willing to help. Anybody who calls. You guys are doing a good job. And who knew? Now we're educated about uh, the Mental Health Center of Denver. And, and again, at the beginning of our conversation today, and maybe someone missed that, it's not just Denver. No. You're all over the state of Colorado. There are mental health centers, and collectively we cover every inch of the state. And do you work together, all you centers? Kind we of actually do work yeah. together. Yeah, we have a group. We get together, frankly, once a month, and we talk about you know, what the, what the, you know, our dreams are about what we can do with our communities and also what are the barriers that get in the way. And unfortunately, um, you know, mental health is still not funded at the level that it probably needs to be. And some of our work is around advocacy. I'll bet it is. And speaking of funding, that's a good point. How do people pay if they need help? Is it, it's not free, is it? Well, it, I mean, you know, um, 
yes, it costs to pay for the electricity and all those other things. So, you know, how do you pull the funding together to do that? And um, our country decided 10 years ago that if you have insurance, behavioral health treatment should be paid the same as physical health treatment. True. I would say insurance companies are still not quite there yet. Wow. You know, so sometimes even with an insurance company, with somebody who has insurance, there has to be some advocacy to make sure they're getting what they need. And uh, and people that work in this field, we know how to advocate uh, in that way. Yeah, so if people have insurance, you know, we're certainly going to charge their insurance. If people have nothing, we scrape dollars away together in a way, frankly, through donations and foundations of people that support the work that we do so we can see people even if they don't have a way to pay. And no government funding? There is some government funding. It could be better. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> Sad but true, isn't it? Yeah. Well, before we wrap up here in Mile High Magazine, you've really done a good job for us today, Dr. Carl Clark. Talk more about how people can reach out to you. Give me some more of these numbers so people are going to want to write them down for the help they might need from you guys. Well, if anybody's in crisis at any time, you know, you can call the Colorado Crisis Services. They have a website, but the phone number is um, 1-844-493-8255. And if you're in Denver, you can call us, 303-504-7900. And you can also go to our website, www.mhcd.org. All the numbers for all these things are on there. It's easy to find. And we have some free services that are online. Oh, good. So if people are dealing with anxiety or depression and you're really good at online adult learning, we have evidence-based modules that will give you tips about how to take care of yourself all on your own. Good job, Dr. Clark. Thanks. Appreciate your work over there at Mental Health Center of Denver. He's president and chief executive officer. And now you know. So if somebody needs help in your family or a friend you know, you have a place to go. And thank you guys for listening. That's Mile High Magazine for today. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll talk to you next week. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. For over a decade, the Center for African American Health has been one of the leading resources of health information and health-related events for the metro area's African American community. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. The center's work is organized about disease self-management, disease prevention, and senior wellness. Annually, in the first quarter, the center hosts its day-long health fair with exhibits and screenings. During the summer, the event is Destination Health, a 5K walk-run in Denver City Park coming up the last Saturday of July. Sharing insights on the status of health and wellness in Denver's African-American community, along with how you can join the fitness and fun of Destination Health, is Executive Director of the Center for African-American Health, Ms. Deidre Johnson. We still have a lot of the health disparities that we've traditionally had when it comes to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, a huge issue around infant mortality and maternal death, which is interesting because that defies income. But at the end of the day, I think when it comes around healthy eating, active living, you'll definitely see a lot more of our younger generation, kind of 30s, 40s, really already having made that switch to eating healthier, wanting healthier foods if they can get access to them. And it's less of a discussion of those 
you know those things you grew up with, like the, the pound cakes and the macaroni and cheese and the the things you have. You can make a healthier version now, but I think there's a lot more discussion around the food sure. that we have. But we still have those same health disparities. For instance, when it comes to maternal death, mm-hmm. we die four times the rate of other moms. Does that mean from childbirth or just? Childbirth or postpartum, just things related to giving birth in America, as well as um, our infantility rates are almost three times that of other groups. Really? Mm-hmm. Our infant mortality? Is yes. that more having to live in inner cities or something like that? You know, at the end of the day, and it's it's fascinating how this information is starting to come up. A lot of it's around toxic stress, and a lot of it is the effect of racism on mothers in America. Okay, the effect of racism, not being able to provide for their children the way they want to, or uh, things like that being held out of jobs they could have, which gives them better income. No, because what's been fascinating, what they've looked into, is you can be an African-American woman, um, highly educated, highly well-paid, and you will still have poor birth outcomes, potentially. And so they've looked at it a couple of ways. You can be a um, a white female who's not even out of high school and have a better birth outcome. You can be a white woman who's giving birth to a biracial child and have yeah. a great birth outcome. But for African-American women, regardless of socioeconomics, yeah. we still have higher rates. And as they keep looking and slicing and dicing it, because they wanted to try to frame it as, oh, well, no, they didn't have access to care or they didn't know what they were doing. No, really, it's it's all of us. And it's interesting because I've been involved in a couple of conversations because I had my own challenges kind of navigating the health system and things that were missed. Sure. But at the end of the day, um, it really is kind of the, the toxic stress of navigating what we navigate daily is racism in America. Yeah. It's one of those points where you can you can draw the line from that cause to this outcome. So that means our maybe life expectancies are still not growing the way they should then. I mean, we're probably living longer, but maybe not as long as other groups may because of the, uh, like you said, the toxic stress. Correct. I think a lot of us are experiencing what feels like longer lifespans, but uh-huh. we still, if you compare us across the board to other folks – we experience excess death. Now, when you look at to the reasons, it, you know, the traditional ones, whether it's hypertension, whether it's diabetes, all the typical health disparities that we've traditionally have are still there. Yeah. So one of the things to figure out is how do you close that gap? Because, you know, in a perfect world, not everybody's going to live forever. Right. But what we can do to make sure we have the best possible outcomes for our community, regardless of where folks work, live, eat, play. I know the insurance companies were saying like African-American men had a life expectancy of 68 to 70 years old. This is also where those discussions about place-based solutions come in because we've gotten to the point now where you can look at a zip code and kind of predict what the average life expectancy is going to be. In a zip code. In a zip code because that's when things come into play around not only income but are you do you have access to um, physical activity and sidewalks and parks? Do you have access to healthy foods? Or do you live in a food desert? Yeah. Do you live in a place where you don't want to take your kids outside? And even if it's not necessarily because of lack of playground, there's so much smog and pollution because you're living right next to the highway. So all those different things come into play. But they've got to, it's first started in California. We've done it actually recently in Denver. There's 
different maps you can kind of look at and say, oh, well, this zip code, this neighborhood, average life expectancy is 80. Down the road, it might just be 75. And they're all in the same town. Yes. That's interesting because, you know, as mobile as we are, come to work down here in Greenwood Village, live in central Denver, go to entertainment in West Denver or in the mountains, and still they can predict by the zip code you live in, even as mobile as you are and the external influences of that, that everybody in there is going to have the same type of life expectancy. Right, because when you think about kind of the resources in that neighborhood, yeah, um, it's one thing to be mobile where you know you can drive and get all the resources you need. But if you happen to be in a neighborhood where you don't have good access to transportation, so getting to a store, maybe a couple bus rides, yeah, and sure. that you have to do that after your second job, Suddenly, all these um, variables kind of weigh down the opportunity to have the resources you need to be as healthy as you can be. Now, you're putting together programs or you have programs at the center that get this kind of information to African-American communities. And, well, let's say, well, anybody who really wants it, actually. Let's, let's not confine you anymore, even though the title is, is there. Are we finding that African-Americans and other communities, Latino communities, they're really becoming more receptive to getting the information and actually putting some practices into place that can help them? Oh, I think, I think we really are. It's amazing. I think people hunger for information. And one of the nice things, you're right, we, we serve everyone who comes to us. But as the Center for African-American Health, we really focus on what are those things that our community really faces as barriers to health, which other folks face as well. And the nice thing is when you connect folks to the resources they need to be healthy in their community, so if they're having a yoga class or a diabetes prevention class or a physical fitness class, it's accessible. It's not, you know, an hour bus ride or an hour drive away, or it's at their local church or the local rec center. Very receptive. The center itself, um, you've been able to not only uh, do things around health, but you've also been able to do things around retirement planning. So entering those new areas there, you should be getting some good response or at least some curiosity about, especially in the the, the retirement master class that you all are are doing now too. Actually going quite well. And and to step back, what we're really doing is, you know, for years we've been in that that health space of how to promote health and educate people about their health. These days, the center, as well as other folks, are looking at, really, what are those social determinants of health? Because only 10% of your health has, 10 to 20% of your health has anything to do with your interaction with the healthcare system. But do you have healthy food? Do you have access to housing? Do you have a job? And so we're looking at things that not only promote health, but at least connect to those other social determinants. Even social connection is an aspect of health. And one of the first programs we've um, really done and we're having great success with is called Aging Mastery. It's the Aging Mastery program model that's from the National Council on Aging out of D.C. Um, at the moment, we are one of three folks in the state of Colorado that offer that program. Just three? Just three. There's one, um, one in Fort Collins. The center is a licensee as well as, I think, Jewish Family Center just started. Okay. And what we've been doing, our last class, we had uh, close to 40 participants. Two Mm -hmm. of our church partners came together and held the class at um, Scott United Methodist. And it's really neat because it's the basic class is 10 weeks in a row. Each week is a very different topic. So whether it's community engagement, 
fall prevention, um, sleep, and all the health ramifications of that, advanced planning, just a variety of topics that cover all those social determinants of health. Yeah. And the other nice thing is we'll do little um, add-ons. So if all the participants come together and say, hey, we want something around safe driving or um, internet security, we'll just bring a community member, a professional or practitioner from that space and have them meet with them, do the presentation and ask questions. So is this twice twice a year you're running the uh, 10 week class or is it three times or four? Or? So we like at a minimum we want to be doing them quarterly. Yeah. Um because Christmas things kind of die down. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. But we're in a position now where as um demand bubbles up, we'll just kind of cater it to that location or with that partner. I think the beauty in it is that not only do the people get the information, but they also get to put that information into practice and into mm-hmm. action. Which when you're talking about the other aspects of of health and eating, and even if you live live in a food desert, you can go someplace and get the right food, putting it into action. That is the key. A lot of people go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, uh-huh, I got it. But mm-hmm. they don't do anything about it. Right. So we're seeing people do more about it then. And the person who's facilitating that session, you know, for the pharmaceutical session, there's a pharmacist who comes in and talks to folks. Yeah. We had um, someone from the sleep center at Kaiser come in and talk to folks. We have an actual advanced planner. So people who can really help you connect those dots if mm-hmm. you have questions later on. Okay. What other new projects are you doing at the center too since you have been there now for two and a half years? I have. Putting did, your own stamp on it. I know. It's, got, it's um, gone by so quickly. Yeah. And very exciting times. So one of the things we – initially started off very quickly with was I'd always been frustrated about the lack of data that's Mm -hmm. available for communities of color. And typically that's because either we're not being asked or we're not responding because of who's asking. And so a year ago, the center started Be Heard Mile High and folks can go to beheardmilehigh.org. It's a community health panel where we just send out little short surveys. It could be anything to, you know, what are your perceptions around mental health do you think that RTD should offer reduced bus passes for yeah. um, youth? Just a variety of topics and um, no no more than 10 questions. And people can choose if they want to have one monthly or quarterly. And it's really our way of starting to have that information. If people want to know what our community thinks, they'll be able to ask the center to and kind of send out B, that question. Be heard, H-E-A-R-D, mile high, H-I-G-H or H-I? H-I-G-H. H-I-G-H. I'm an old English major. I don't. <laughs> Be heard mile high. Then what do you do with the with the data that you collect? Do you give a summary back to people or do you send to various agencies of RTD needs to know some information? Do you send that to them so they can have an insight as to what the community's thinking? You know, a little bit of everything. So we just started within the first year. We have a thousand people in our panel, which yeah. is very exciting. Initially, we're using it to inform our work. So we've been asking them kind of what do they want to see the center doing. We've had instances where the reason we um, did the RTD pass question was a staff member was um, in, engaged in community because they knew RTD was having these meetings. Yeah. And someone said, you know what, we need to let them know what we need. And so we just put the question out and then we're able to approached RTD during this work group meeting and say, hey, this is what 
this group of people is thinking. Yeah. And then we actually just want to get to the point where primary goal is to have a safe place where we know what the community needs because as things bubble up, what should the center be advocating for? Yeah. And yeah. so it really informs our work, but also down the road, um, if someone wants to know, hey, what what do people in 80205 think about a grocery store versus some other topic? Sure. De-identified. And we track by zip code and gender. So just very basic things, just so we can kind of tell the story. But I'm very excited about it. It's the um, first Be Heard or first actually community health panel in the nation that's not housed at a university, yeah. but within a community-based organization. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. Because when I first took over the center, my predecessor was telling me that in 2011, we had done a survey of churches and had 2,000 respondents. Well, our state health department, the most they've ever gotten is 200. And so to me, that it's all about who's asking. Ms. Deidre Johnson is the executive director for the Center for African-American Health, sharing insights on their programs and the forthcoming event, Destination Health. You can find out more about that also online at caahealth.org. We'll continue our conversation with her on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Thank you so much for joining me for Mile High Magazine. And whether you've got a child or like I do, my child is now out of a car seat, but my niece is with me all the time. It is important to make sure that our kids, our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, but kids are strapped up in the right car seats. So today I've got with me from the Colorado State Patrol, Trooper Timothy Sutherland. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And you are the Child Passenger Safety Program Coordinator. Um, Tell me a little bit about Car Seats here in Colorado and what is Car Seats Colorado? So Car Seats Colorado is a collaborative effort between CDOT and the Colorado State Patrol. And basically, we have over 1,400 certified technicians across the state that make sure your kids are in in safe car seats. How do they do that? Well, we have check stations all across the state. We have, at last count, I think it was around 1,200 check stations across the state. You can drop in. You can make an appointment. You can call us on the phone. You can go to our website, carseatscolorado.com. You can find a location near you, schedule an appointment, go in there, and have your seat checked. Well, it's interesting because when I brought my daughter home from the hospital, and this has been several years ago, it was like, okay, I think the car seat's in there, right? I mean, you do you do the best job you can, but yet I read somewhere, is this true that three out of four kids are not properly secured in their car seat? That is correct. Some of these car seats, it takes a rocket scientist to get them in correctly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not so necessarily your major you know, malfunctions with the car seat. It's basically not reading the owner's manual for the car, not reading the owner's manual for the actual car seat. And then simple things like maybe the harness straps put on wrong. Maybe you didn't tighten the uh, retractor on the car seat. Maybe you didn't um, buckle something the way it Mm -hmm. should be or place it where it needs to be. Simple mistakes can lead to big problems. Okay. So let's say you were talking about the different car stations around town. How do you find a list of those and where to go? Carseatscolorado.com. Or you can go onto our Facebook page, Car Seats Colorado, mm-hmm. click on the uh, find an inspection station near you, and we have a real interactive map there that's really simple to use. You click on your area, and it'll pull up a list. Well, obviously, you've trained a lot of people to check car seats. Too many. Too many. <laughs> we never can have too many, actually. No, and I hear that. Um, how d- how did this all start? Like, what brought this about? Because I know when I was little, I mean, kids weren't even in car seats. Well, the number one killer for kids, number one injury for kids is automobile accidents. 
So, you know, NHTSA looked at this, and NHTSA's National Highway Transportation Association, and they looked at it and said, you know, we need to do something about this. So each state goes through a certifying agency called Safe Kids, and Safe Kids is the one that puts on these programs. Um, you become an instructor, we go out and we teach about the classes and we teach the technicians on how to do their thing. And, you know, hospitals and police departments and just average Joes get into this. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about just keeping the little people safe. And let's talk about Colorado laws. What are the laws for Colorado children as far as being in a car seat, booster seat, whatever it may be? So I could bore you with the details of the law. <laughs> okay. But what I could tell you is there's a law and then there's best practice. Okay. And if you follow best practice and what best practice is, is reading the car seat brochures and reading the owner's manuals and following what they recommend on the side of the car seat and then what your car recommends, you're going to excel past any law that we have. Our law could actually be stronger. The okay. one thing that you need to know about our law is unlike adult laws with car, with seatbelts, car seat laws are a primary offense. So I can pull you over and I can't cite you for that child being in the back seat. Unsecured. Wow. Okay, so. good. What at what age um, are kids in Colorado supposed to be in some kind of a car seat booster seat? Up till their eighth birthday. Okay. But depending on your child, right? you like my kids, of course, I'm 6'3", so my kids are a little bigger than the mm-hmm. average child. And, you know, other kids are itty-bitty. Some kids, you know, their their mental development's just kind of all over the place, and they can't sit still in a car seat. So you got to take in their age. you got to take in their weight. you got to take in their height, their mental development. Mm-hmm. All those things go into the right age to get them out of a car seat. You know, when you promote out of an infancy or graduate out of an infancy, you're not really graduating. You're demoting that kid's safety. Mm. The safest place and the safest way to ride in a car is rear-facing. If we could all do that, we'd be a lot better off. Wow. So, you know, keep your kid rear-facing as long as possible. We teach to age of two or three. You know, as long as possible is what we recommend. And, you know, then go into the five-point harness and keep them in the back seat. Never put an infant seat up in the front seat because of the airbags. And if you are forced to put a child in the front seat... Make sure they're forward-facing and they're far away from that seatbelt mm-hmm. or that airbag as possible. And are we still saying middle seat in the back is the best spot? Middle seat, I say the best seat of the house is the best seat that you can use. So that's going to get you and the child in the car and out of the car safely. Okay. So. Okay. And for some people, that's middle seat and some people, that's not. Yeah, it depends. Are you getting your kid out on the curbside every day? Are you getting your kid out into traffic every day? You got to make sure that, you know, you're looking at those options as well. But um, I realistically, if you're in a crash and you're in the middle seat, you don't know where that crash is coming from. Mm. If you're in a rollover and you're in the middle seat, is the roof going to protect you from that rollover crash? You just never know where the impact's going to come from. Okay. I think that's probably good for a lot of parents to hear. Um, how do parents know what kind of car seat to get their child? They got to do their research. <laughs> <laughs> it's you, not simple, huh? You can walk into a Target or what used to be a Babies are us and get blown away by the options. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, you know, they start from $50 all the way up to two grand. Right. You know, what's your budget? What's going to fit in your car? What's going to work for your lifestyle? They're all tested the same. You know, every seat is tested the same. So as long as they're past, you know, their, their safety certifications and they're on their market, just get what fits best for your kid. Okay. Sometimes I think as a parent, you think, well, if I spend more money, I'm going to get the better car seat. Right. Exactly. And that's not necessarily true. Okay. Well, that's kind of good to hear. What about, and I know this happens because we've got so many garage sales going on right now. Right. Um, and one in my neighborhood, they had a whole bunch of car seats out there. Yep. What do you say to that? I say if that's your last resort and you have to do it, there's some simple rules you need to follow. You need to make sure you know where that car seat's history has been. You need to make sure it's never been in an accident. 
You got to make sure you know how it's been washed and how it's been taken care of. These seats, they expire usually around six years or so. And it's just like anything in your car. What happens to your dashboard after a long period of time? It starts to crack. It, the mm-hmm. plastics start to break down. The materials start to break down. You don't know what fluids have been in that car seat. I mean, kids come up with some creative stuff to put in their car seat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so look at all that stuff. Um, we got a list of it on Car Seats Colorado. You can download. Okay. Um, you know, make sure that it hasn't been Frankenstein together. You mm-hmm. know, car seat that says Graco on it but has even flow parts should be a red flag. Mm-hmm. So just look at all that stuff when you're getting into the used car seats. Well, and I think that's a good thing for a lot of parents to hear. I'd never thought about that before about the dashboard. Oh, yeah. About the plastic probably getting hot and cracking and getting old. Because I always wondered what's wrong with car seats that look good that are at a garage sale or let's say a sister or a friend of somebody gives one to you. It's like, hey, it's a free car seat. You remember back in the old days when we had eight tracks and cassettes <laughs> and you left them on your dashboard and you right. come in and it was just a pile of goo? Yep. Well, same thing can happen to the car seat okay. and the plastics. I think that's really good for parents to hear because I don't think I would have thought because I could never figure out exactly why right except for maybe safety standards changed but never really thought about the makeup and the materials of a car seat disintegrating well you know safety standards too i mean cars are evolving every day and the technology in car seats are evolving every day i mean they got car seats with sensors and them to let you know your kid's still in the back seat mm-hmm. so i mean you know you're going to get the latest and greatest technology when you're buying something new right but if you're forced to get a hand-me-down car seat or something from a family or something try to follow the rules and just make sure you know where that seat's been make sure it hasn't been in a crash and make sure it's safe for your child okay and what about for people that have car seats that are old expired they want to get rid of them what do they do with them bring me your old car seats i'll take them really yeah we'll take them and we'll recycle them we got uh 24 locations across the state now so once again, on Car Seats Colorado, we have a list of all the locations, mainly all the troop offices, but we have a bunch here in the local uh, Denver metro area as well. So drop them off. We'll 100% recycle the seats. That is fantastic. And that would, I would assume, would also be the website if somebody has questions. So you're saying you can find out what kind of car seat your kids are needing, where to get it checked, where to take them to get recycled. I mean, you guys have kind of thought of everything. You can find training if you want to become a technician. You can find everything on that website. It's that a one-stop shop. Wonderful. And once again, if you're just joining us, I'm Melissa Moore. This is Mile High Magazine. We're talking about the importance of car seats, not just having a car seat, but making sure it's installed properly, that it fits your child properly. And I'm talking to Trooper Timothy Sutherland of the Colorado State Patrol. He is the Child Passenger Safety Program Coordinator. Um, so we've been talking about car seats. Now let's move on to something that I think most parents are aware of here in the summertime with the heat. Don't leave your kids in a hot car. You got it. And, you know, to this day, being a father of two, I will never figure out how people forget their kids in the back car. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it happens all the time. And there's been, what, I think 18 deaths so far because of it. And, you know, it's crazy. As a trooper, you see a lot of crazy things. And, you know, safety for your child should be priority number one. You can put your bottle of wine in the back of the car after work, and you will not forget that bottle of Mm. wine. But for some reason, people forget their kids Mm. in the back seat of the car. You know, same with pets. Right. Get those pets out of there. Right. Yeah. I I don't understand leaving a kid in a car, running into a store. It's a a hard one for me to understand. And I, you know, especially with the heat the way it is, leaving your pet in the car. It's supposed to, you know, top out at 100 degrees here soon. And right. You know, that's just, if you go into your car right now and, you know, you don't put on the air conditioner and you sit in your car 
and they say at least 15 minutes at 100 degree heat, you'll be dehydrated and have to go to the hospital mm-hmm. within 15 minutes. Right. And that's as an adult. So a child, their body is a lot smaller. And, you know, a lot of these infants, their their temperature gauge hasn't, you know, regulated just quite True. yet. And so, you know, they can get hotter a lot quicker. And, right. you know, we pack our little guys and little girls in, you know, heavy sweaters and then those onesies that cover them all up while we're packed up in shorts and a, a T-shirt. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's such a, a good point. What is the law for um, dogs left in a hot car? Can I'm, we bust them out? Can we not? Like, what what is the law? Uh, the new law is that you can, if a dog is in a position of endangerment, you okay. can break that window and not be held liable for that situation. Okay. But you that doesn't mean you can go around and see a dog in the car and just start breaking windows. You right. got to make sure that dog's distressed. You got to make sure that dog is actually in trouble. Right. You can't go by Taco Bell and see a dog in the car with the window cracked and go, oh, that dog's in trouble and break mm-hmm. the window because then you will be liable for that. Right. Right. And I would assume if you see a child in a hot car. Break that window. Okay. Even if it's, you know, a situation where you're unsure, you know, get in there and make sure that child's okay. Okay. That's what I would think as well. Thank you so much for being here. Some good information. Once again, we're talking to Trooper Timothy Sutherland of the Child Passenger Safety Program Coordinator here for the Colorado State Patrol. And if you've been wondering, like, I'm not sure if my car seat's put in right, maybe you've done the best you can, but you're still unsure. Because I know for me, uh, my niece's car seat does not fit in my car the same way it fits in my sister's car. Exactly. And every time I'm putting it in, I'm like, gosh, I hope I'm doing it right. You can get some help. You can have somebody who has been trained check into it. And to find a list of those locations. CarSeatsColorado.com. All right, great. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. I'm Melissa Moore. This is Mile High Magazine. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.